America's original and oldest heritage pack company, Duluth Pack, hosts a podcast led by CEO Tom Sega. Real stories with real people who we admire, plus outdoor industry conversations, business discussions, entrepreneurial advice, and more. Now enjoy this week's episode of Leader of the Pack. This week's episode of Leader of the Pack is brought to you by our friends at Spring Creek Manufacturing. Spring Creek Manufacturing is made in the USA and has been based in Mountain Iron, Minnesota since 1985. Believe it or not, they are America's original canoe stabilizer manufacturer. They also build unbeatable American-made truck racks. I have one on my own personal truck and love it, along with making the world's best camp saw. Plus, now is the time to properly store your canoes and kayaks, and I recommend the Spring Creek Manufacturing Garage Storage Rack. And don't just take my word for it. Check out their website at springcreek.com and read their many five-star reviews. Plus, enjoy an exclusive discount with code LEADER15. That is LEADER, L-E-A-D-E-R-1-5 for a 15% off site-wide discount. Exclusions may apply. Now, back to the podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Tom Sega from Duluth Pack, and this is the Leader of the Pack podcast. And today we have a very special guest and talk about leader. We call this the leader of the pack. This is the leader of all leaders. Today, our guest is Colonel Greg Gadsen, retired U.S. Army we are going to have some fun today, and we are going to talk to a true, true leader. Colonel, welcome. Well, thank you, Tom. I'm uh, what an honor to be here with you today, and um, I appreciate the uh, the invitation to be on your your podcast, Leader of the Pack. How what a what a perfect play on uh, words, and and how appropriate. Well, I I got to tell you, folks, uh, Colonel Gadsden and myself have not known each other. For, for very long. We met this July at a fundraiser, and I can tell you that I was honored to be put at a table with Colonel Gadsden. Did not know him prior to, did not know all this history that we are going to learn about today um, until I learned a little bit that night, and we got chatting and really hit it off, and then, uh, and then learned Colonel Gadsden's history. And I can tell you, I have goosebumps. I am in awe that he would spend time with us today. And we're going to learn a whole bunch. So, bunch. so let's dive in and, and learn about Colonel Gadsden. Colonel Gadsden, tell us about you. Let's go back to the beginning. All right. where, did, where did you grow up and go to high school and all those good things? Right, right. So, um, so I'll start with saying that I typically, or I like to call Chesapeake, Virginia home, the Tidewater area, uh, uh, four cities of Virginia Beach, Norfolk, Portsmouth, and Chesapeake, we collectively call the area Tidewater. It's where I spent, um, you know, I say my formative years growing up. I was actually born uh, in, uh, this, in uh, I guess, the Southwest or Midwest in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. I didn't spend much time there. My mom was uh, had gone there to, uh, to, to be with her sister. And so, uh, yeah, as you know, a lot of times back in those times that uh, you spend the birth with a, a family member. So I was born in Oklahoma city, 
um, but didn't stay there very long at all. My parents were actually living in uh, Washington, D.C., where they were uh, college students at Howard University. So, um, so Washington, D.C., ironically, was kind of my first home, which I'm kind of outside uh, um, as a retiree. Um, my parents uh, graduated from Howard University um, uh, in 70, and, and uh, my mother was, a, uh, was an educator, and my father was a pharmacist. Uh, he worked for uh, Eli Lindley Company for his, uh, right out of college, and so we moved around a little bit, spent time in, uh, in Rochester, New York, as well as Buffalo, um, but when he decided to get out of sales and practice pharmacy in the hospital, uh, we moved to the Tidewater uh, area, first in Norfolk and then finally in Chesapeake. So, so that's why I call that home. I would, uh, well, first, my parents were, were very good students and, and um, I was sort of the, the antithesis of that. I was a jock <laughs> and I wanted, to, I wanted to do it my way and so focused a lot of my um, energy into becoming a, 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 an athlete, although I, they wouldn't allow me to divorce my, my school books completely. So I, I was a decent student. I was an okay student, but certainly never achieved my maximum potential. Um, wanted to be, wanted to grow up and be a professional football player. Um, thought I was going to, was offered and uh, a, a full scholarship at um, to University of Virginia and thought I was heading that way and and kind of at the last minute they decided to, uh, to to not to offer me a scholarship. I was devastated, heartbroken, and uh, didn't know where I was going to go. That was uh, you know Plan B was going to be uh, having parents, having a you know a blessed family. Um, a college recruiter from the United States Military Academy at West Point came to my high school to recruit another student athlete. And my coach just happened to say, hey, here's a, here's a guy that doesn't have anywhere to go. That was me. And I took my fifth uh, official visit to West Point. The only question I asked was uh, whether they played Division I football because I, I now had this kind of burning fire to show everyone that I could play football at the highest level. Um, and I, the only question I remember asking was, do they play division one football? And they, they said, yes. And, and so I'm like, you know, kind of sign me up. So, <laughs> sign me up. <laughs> so, so I knew, I, I knew that this track was going to take me off of uh, being a professional football player. I, I knew that from the very beginning. Um, but I knew I was going to get a good education. And I was going to play division. I was going to play football at the highest level and, and, and be comfortable with that. So you played all four years at West Point. Yes, sir. As a linebacker? Outside linebacker. Yep. 195-pound oh. outside linebacker. I'll tell you what, though. I've, I've done some deep diving here, Colonel. I saw in, in 195 pounds, you uh, – you look like you could uh, throw that 195 pounds around pretty well out there. You you go to West Point, you play four years of football, and then it's time to to do your commission. Yep. So um, I, uh, I I graduated, and along the way, um, uh, I've made lifelong friends. But my uh, my number one lifelong friend is is uh, is my partner, my wife, and classmate. Uh, we met, uh, we, we, um, 
We started dating uh, my junior year and I married, we got married three days after we graduated. I, I was uh, commissioned a, a field artillery officer and, uh, and we would uh, eventually, um, after completing our, 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 she was a signal officer, um, after completing um, our, our basic uh, uh, courses, uh, our officer basic courses, be stationed at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Ironically, the place where I was not far from the place I was born. I was going to say, kind of going back home. Right, absolutely. So tell us a little bit about basic training, because you obviously go in as an officer. Right. As a, as a graduate of West Point. Tell us a, a little bit for, for all of us out here listening that, that haven't been through the military, what basic training's about, and, uh, and, and then forward from there on to some advanced training. Well, one thing I left out, Tom, was uh, so I was on the long course at West Point. Um, um, you know, probably not uh, again, not uh, not a not an academic resume that uh, prepared me to go to a place like that. I actually enlisted for a year, and I and I was at the United States Military Prep uh, Prep School at Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. So I would actually go through basic training. Um, and so um, basic training is, um, I would describe a, a process of, uh, of professional um, hellraisers, um, uh, an eight week um, indoctrination uh, where, where you start to understand that um, you're part of an organization that is not about you, but it's about the greater purpose and the greater mission. And so uh, we've got to, you've got to learn to put you aside and put, put the we ahead of yourself. And, uh, and, and they do an effective job of doing that because if, if you don't get it, <laughs> your life becomes uh, a, a, a significantly tougher. And, um, and so uh, they break you down to build you back up. And, uh, and so that is a, that is a, a life, I mean, a tried and true method, uh, for, you know, from, from the history of our military. Uh, of course, it's evolved as we've become, uh, you know, smarter and, you know, the, you know, everybody can say, you know, the, the generation before you can tell you that they, you know, slept with dinosaurs and, you know, ate raw meat or whatever, <laughs> you know, um, when, when dinosaurs walked the plane, but, um, that, but that's, and that's the evolution of, um, you know, just being smarter about, um, and learning more about ourselves physically, you know, mentally and emotionally. Being that you were a high level athlete and then coming into basic training and, and team sports like football is not about well, you hope it's not about me, right? You right. hope it's about us and we. Um, I'm assuming that probably helped you going into basic. A absolutely, it was um, you know the two a days of of football and all those. So um, I think the I would say that the the mental stress of uh, of you know sort of uh, stripping your you know having your having um, something, being part of something bigger yourself certainly wasn't um, so traumatic for me. Um, uh, you know, probably the long days and, and the marching and all that, again, is something new. There's a newness there, but, 
But I think the discipline of an athlete, you already understand, you know, regardless of your sport that, you know, it, it takes discipline and focus and, and, you know, it's just, it was, you know, the matter of the task. So not, um, not tremendously, um, upheaval for me. In fact, I uh, said, Tom, I was a paper boy in high and all the way through uh, high school. I would got, I got up at 4.30 every morning. My brother and I got up at 4.30 every morning to deliver th almost 300 uh, papers. And so when I joined the army, I was getting up at 5.30 in the morning. So I, <laughs> I got say, up. Hey, I get to sleep in. Right, <laughs> I get to sleep in. So you go through basic training. So you went back and enlisted, you come through basic training. And then what's the progression after that for you after coming out of, of West Point? And well, so I was, I had to enlist to go through the prep school. Um, that was 11 months. And then I was discharged to enter West Point. So, okay. Um, and then I went through West Point in the next four years. So, um, so then I was commissioned and after graduation, upon graduation, I was commissioned as an officer, as an officer. Yep. Awesome. Tell us about deployments because we've obviously been in the, 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 uh, in the, in, in a couple wars here for some time for the greater part of your career. Yep. And you've had several tours uh, overseas. Yes, sir. So right out of the bat, um, or, you know, almost out of the bat, but as a second lieutenant in my first uh, assignment, I was uh, um, ultimately a platoon leader um, uh, in, a, in an eight-inch artillery platoon in the 75th uh, FA Brigade. You know, 518 uh, FA was my battalion. Um, when Saddam Hussein and Iraq invaded Kuwait, um, that otherwise known as uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, um, I, I, I was uh, deployed to, um, you know, deployed to um, help, you know, push the Iraqi forces out of Kuwait. So that was my first, or my, it was my first deployment. And I'll, and I'll be honest with you, it was, it was something that I was sort of looking for, almost sort of Ernest Hemingway, like where, you know, you know, you want the ultimate test and, you know, the ultimate test uh, as a, you know, as an officer is war. And, mm -hmm. and I have to say that I was, I was excited and, 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 and I was looking forward to, to proving my, you know, proving myself in combat. And, and, you know, after the deployment, obviously, we were successful in, in accomplishing our mission. Um, you know, what I walked away with uh, was the very cold, stark um, face of war. And it's not good. There's nothing good about it. Um, even if it's justified, which we, could, which we have no argument of the justification in this case, um, taking another life, seeing the death and destruction, um, quite honestly, of, you know, Saddam Hussein, Saddam Hussein's soldiers didn't have the, didn't have the ability to say, no, I don't want to do this. They were doing exactly what they were told to do, just like I was doing what I was told to do. And, and, and death and destruction, there's nothing pleasant about it. There's nothing glamorous about it regardless of its justification. So, so I, 
I kind of came back with a, a couple things. First, I didn't know whether or not I was going to do this as a career, but I, I just always felt like this is for real. And I, whatever I have to do, my focus has to be that whoever is under me, we're prepared to do our mission and take care of ourselves. And, um, and, and secondly, there's just like, honestly, there's nothing good about war. There, there isn't. Um, and, and, um, that, you know, that was sort of a, a very, a sobering, um, interpersonal kind of perspective that I took away. Um, and, and then, you know, over the next, uh, 20, years I, I deployed to the Balkans um, um, in a stability operation um, uh, no violent con combat but understanding again uh, a case where a society turned upon itself and 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 committed atrocities in the name of whatever is just again you know again it's just sad and sobering that that we are, that that mankind is willing to do this thing to themselves, and and then my next deployment was um, as a as a senior major to Afghanistan, where I was a, a brigade XO, a brigade executive officer. Um, you know, coming under, you know, being on a forward operating base in in eastern Afghanistan. Um, you know, coming under attack every month and just dealing with, um, you know, life and death almost every day. I mean, it, there's nothing more sobering than, you know, putting an American soldier on a helicopter uh, to send them home in a, in a, in a transfer case. It's just, it is, I, I, I always said to myself, you know, this, this person did not wake up the day and say this was their day. And then, you know, I said that my final deployment, operational deployment, was uh, Iraq uh, during the surge. Um, a the most that's your that's your fourth fourth, fourth deployment. Yeah, fourth uh, combat or operational deployment. I've okay uh, in an environment where in those early months of two thousand seven, um, almost every single day a U.S. service member um, paid paid in full measure. I mean. Um, if you could imagine being in a profession where you went to work every day, knowing somebody that had that same uniform on wasn't coming home alive, that was the that was sort of the environment that we were in. Colonel, how how do you dissociate from from home, or can you dissociate from home when you're on a, a deployment like you've been on multiple times, where these awful things are happening around you? You're in that environment. Um, yet back home here, there's, there's family and there's loved ones. How, how do you dissociate or can you dissociate that I'm here now and I have to focus a hundred percent on what I'm doing here? Absolutely. It is. Uh, so a couple of things, uh, on, on that, Tom, um, the, the first kind of thought that came to mind as you were talking about that. When, so I was in Afghanistan and the Russians wouldn't let us fly 
over their airspace to get to Afghanistan. So I was stationed in Hawaii at the time. So we literally had to fly east. So from Hawaii to California, California to the East Coast, the East Coast to, to Ireland, Ireland to Turkey, Turkey to, to Uzbekistan, Uzbekistan to Afghanistan. So that trip took literally four days. Wow. And, and so um, about, about halfway through my one-year tour in Afghanistan, I got to go home for two weeks of R&R. And so I'm in Afghanistan, which I... I kind of lightly call it the middle of nowhere. I don't know that you can go to any more of a remote place on this planet. I mean, maybe North Korea, but it's just, it's just the, the, the land where time stood still. And four days later, I'm driving down a highway in Hawaii, you know, paradise. And I was literally just overcome with the, with the literal change in scenery that, that happened in those four days. I mean, it's like, am I dreaming? You know, am I home or was I in a nightmare? And, you know, just, it is really, it is really um, it's hard to kind of wrap your, your, your mind around. But, but the second part of your question is, um, you know, I say when we deploy, when our, when our country sends us somewhere, um, mom and dad and apple pie, that, that American flag, you know, we proudly go, but when we're there, all that's gone. It's about ourselves. It's about those people, um, that I'm there with, that I'm certain with, you know, home is, we, we, you, you really have to focus on, on your, your mission and your task and, and, uh, and, and, and being vigilant and, and focus. That has to be so incredibly difficult to turn a switch on and turn a switch off, which is, I mean, it sounds like there's no choice, but we have to do that. And when you're with your brothers and you're overseas, that that has to be our focus. And that's, this is what we have to do every day. Yep. 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 It, yep, it is. So if you don't mind and, and folks, this, uh, just listen really close because Colonel Gadsden has a story here to tell, and, and you're on your fourth deployment, and May 7th, the evening of May 7th comes. Folks, listen close. Uh, this is incredible. So um, I, the, the irony of the night I was wounded was that I, was, uh, I had just uh, departed from a, from a memorial service for for two young men and a sister battalion that had been killed at Fort, uh, a sister battalion from Fort Riley, Kansas. We were part of the same brigade, uh, First Lieutenant Ryan Jones and Specialist Sunson uh, were killed uh, three days earlier by an improvised explosive device. And I, I had known of people that were hurt and wounded in those um, early months of, of Iraq and, and somehow you're able to kind of uh, I don't want to say disassociated, but it's just, it really is sort of the, the you know, the environment. Um, but in this case, on this evening for me, um, maybe the fact that they were from the same brigade I was with, they came from Fort Riley, Kansas, as I were, um, 
the sacrifice of these two young men had really kind of hung on to me. I was just uh, quite honestly wondering if, if, if we were making a difference, was this worth it? Um, what were their families going through as they were still obviously processing uh, the, the, the death of, of loved ones and just all those myriad of thoughts are just literally rolling through my head even after I departed the memorial service um, back to my headquarters in a, in a four-vehicle patrol. Um, I was uh, vehicle number three of four. Uh, we were traveling in a kind of a herringbone uh, formation and what would uh, what we would consider a, a, a major road or highway in, in the United States, you know, probably going about 40 miles an hour. Um, and, you know, wham! Um, my, my, my vehicle is hit by an improvised, uh, command wire detonated. So, so someone saw us coming, there was a, probably a, a spotter. And then there was somebody that was, that was on the trigger. So it was, it wasn't, I didn't run over a random bomb. I was targeted and someone, um, uh, detonated the explosive when my vehicle was close enough. And so, um, the, the blasts, uh, lifted, I was in an armored Humvee, um, uh, M1151 up armored Humvee, 15,000 pound vehicle. The blast lifted my vehicle off the road and, it, and ejected me out of the vehicle where I can, I remember kind of flying through the air and, and kind of hitting the ground and coming to a rolling stop on my back. Um, I knew, I knew what had happened. Um, there was no no doubt that I, you know, it was an IED. There was sort of this disbelief a little bit, like, I can't believe this has happened to me. And then all of a sudden you go from that to this is serious. And, uh, and, I, and um, as you heard me say, Tom, I said, the last thing that I, I consciously remember saying was, God, I don't want to die here. And I was out. My senior non-commissioned officer in my patrol, First Sergeant Frederick Johnson, um, would be the first to arrive at my vehicle. And he was the one to identify that I was missing. And, um, and he would be the first to find me um, about a football field from where my vehicle stopped is where they found me. Um, already, un already unconscious, you know, lying in a pool of my blood. Um, he began to resuscitate me while, um, while a young 19-year-old uh, private medic would, uh, would get the tourniquets on my legs. Uh, the fact that the doctors say saved my life. Um, just to give you, uh, uh, just to, and so um, they eventually got me in a vehicle and evacuated me, uh, uh, moved me back to an aid station where a medevac hel helicopter could come get me and take me. Uh, to a cache where, um, where I would have uh, my initial surgery. Um, just to kind of give you a perspective of, of my injuries, um, in those first four to six hours or so after I was wounded, um, I went through 129 pints of blood. Um, I died six times. Um, but even more profoundly, uh, what I would tell you about our environment is that um, in that month, in the month of May of 2007 alone, uh, 131 U.S. service members would pay with their lives, and more than 10 times that were severely wounded. So 
it was a very brutal environment. That was that was that was that was our place of work. That was our place of duty. Colonel, you 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 get injured. You get uh, medevaced out. Where did you get medevaced to? And then what was the process then? Because I know you ended up uh, recovering and rehabbing in uh, Walter Reed. Right. How does how does all that work for for those of us that just hear this on the news and we just we never have the chance to have a discussion with somebody who's who's been through this. They live it firsthand. They still live it every day today. Right. So um, so we were, uh, you know, we were it was called uh, FOB Falcon. It was uh, it was actually my parent brigade. I had been attached to a different brigade. So fourth uh, brigade of the first infantry was on Ford operating base Falcon. So. I was initially triaged on uh, on the base I had just left from the memorial service. A medevac would come in and get me and take me to a combat hospital in, in the middle of Baghdad, actually in the green zone, if you familiar with that term. Um, and that's where I had my initial uh, surgery. Um, uh, the next day, they would move me from there to Balad, um, which was a which which was an air force base. And that's where they would evacuate me out of theater. Um, on a C-17, they flew me from Balad, uh, Iraq, to uh, Longstreet, Germany, where I was operated on again. And then the following day, um, I was flown to Andrews Air Force Base, where I'd be ground transported to, um, uh, to Walter Reed Army Medical Center in Washington, D.C., where I arrived on the 11th of May. So for me, you know, um, literally four days from being wounded, I was I was back in the states at a at a major trauma trauma center. So, at any of this uh, time, had you regained consciousness? No. Um, when I arrived at Walter Reed on the 11th of May, I was uh, intubated on a feeding tube in an induced coma. So, um, so I will tell you, my my last um, memory of being in Iraq was talking to my brigade commander. So I was a Lieutenant Colonel by this time when I was wounded, my brigade commander was a full Colonel. And, and um, I was just te uh, telling him to, you know, please tell Kim and my kids that I love them. Cause I didn't know whether I was gonna make it. I mean, it was, I knew it was bad, um, you know, not that I had a mirror to look at, but I had enough people around me that I knew and the look in their eyes told me everything. And, uh, and so um, I, I remember hearing them, the helicopter coming in to pick me up and then that's it. I remember nothing else until I eventually had waking up in Walter Reed. You know, it, it's, I have goosebumps just listening. And, and the first time I heard you talk at the event here in, in July, I had absolute goosebumps. And, and I know that was pure impromptu for you because you said that when they gave you the microphone. And, but I know you do a lot of speaking engagements. And, and just hearing you talk and hearing you talk about it, you know, what you all did for a living, what you all did for, for us and, and continue to, and, and the troops do, we who go to work every day and think that we have stressful days and we have tough days and, and all of that, um, 
you know, not once have I ever gone to work and thought ever what that I'd have to tell somebody to tell my loved ones that I love them. And, and we all need to think about that a little more and, and really put some thought into what we do, we get to do because of what all of our military does for us. And I, I, both times I've heard you speak, it just, I'm in awe because it makes me think how easy our jobs are, how, how our stresses, we make them probably a lot bigger, Colonel, than they actually are because we've never been put to the test that our troops are. And I know there's a lot of PTSD issues out there. And I know that's, we met where the, at a fundraiser where funds are going to help troops come back from these awful things that they see and go through so that they can get back into real life like the rest of us have it so easy because we never leave what what this life is. So, I mean, I have to thank you and I don't want to belabor all of, you know, your your injuries and, and what you went through there. Um, but I want to I want to talk a little bit about some some wonderful things as well. And, and, and some things that you said, one is and we'll talk about this because we're going to talk about you being an NFL star as well. Um, the power of belief and, and how you got that through to, to some, some uh, Super Bowl champions. But, you know, if I've done some, some additional research on you, Colonel. And I see you when you have on your dress blues. And that jacket's getting a little heavy there because there are a lot of medals and a lot of ribbons that come down the front of, of your uniform. Can you tell us about some of those? Because as a layman, I don't understand what a lot of those are about or the sacrifice that people have to do or the work they have to put in to get some of those. Sometimes you can probably appreciate that um, in your employees, especially as a, a the leading your company, is that um, uh, personal thanks from you can go a lot more than a bonus or you know something that's that is um, that is it, more than money. I think. A personal thanks, and and so our award system is sort of commiserate to a couple of things, you know, doing something above and beyond, um, and is commiserate to your rank. And so, you know, the 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 ones that are at the bottom, eventually, like for me, that's. <laughs> You know, those are kind of the deployments. They just mark that I've been deployed in, in the ribbon, the campaign ribbon of, of, um, of where I've been. It's, a, it's sort of a, a little bit of a history um, of where you've been. Um, and, and then there's, you know, there's meritorious and achievement medals that you get again, um, achievement medals and uh, you know, maybe as a junior enlisted soldier or a junior officer, but as you get higher up, you know, the bar for, you know, above and beyond, it, it gets more significant. And so, you know, for me, um, you know, my higher, I guess my higher awards, um, you know, my, my highest award was my last one, the one that I was going out the door, um, uh, my distinguished 
service medal. And maybe that's sort of, um, you know, my, it's, it's our second highest medal, but not, but it's not a Valorous medal. You know, the bronze star, the silver star, the, the uh, distinguished service cross and the, and the, um, leap, you know, um, medal of honor or, or, or Valorous awards, or you could get a, you can, I have a bronze star, but I don't have it with a V device. A V says that there is something that you did that was Valorous re, uh, uh, related to what you were doing. And so I, I get, it tells a little bit of a story, tells a little bit about maybe where you've been and what you've done. And, um, and it's our way of, it's our way because we can't give people bonuses in their pay, but we can, we can still recognize and acknowledge their contributions above and beyond the call. Um, and, and so that's what our, that's sort of what our award system is kind of uh, built around. Okay. And you also have the Legion of Merit Medal, the yep. uh, Global War on Terrorism Service Medal, the Purple Heart, um, and yep. so many more uh, when, I, when I see that, and, and we appreciate it. So tell us about... <clears throat> The title of Director of Wounded Warrior, the Wounded Warrior Program. Right. So, um, so this, and that was a journey. So as I, as you know, I was wounded in 07 and I began to recover. Um, while I was recovering, um, I went to grad school at Georgetown University and, and earned a master's degree in policy management. And that's the guy who didn't, didn't uh, like school that much. Yeah, yeah, but I needed something to do. I, I, so I, I, um, I, I'm, I was beyond video games. I can't figure those things out. And so I figured, um, I really wanted something where, um, my thought was if I went to school, if, if I failed, no one was counting on me. It would only impact me. I, I, I wanted some responsibility, but not, I didn't want somebody necessarily counting on me. And so school seemed like the, a good choice. So I, I went to school for a year and, and, and got a master's at Georgetown. And then I did a war college fellowship. Now, uh, obviously, given my wounds, um, um, I had to go through a medical board, I knew that I was going to be uh, found not fit to serve. But there was a but there was a program called continuation on active duty that I could apply to stay on active duty after being found unfit. Uh, basically making an argument that I could still, um, I could still make a, a valuable contribution to the Army. And so um, after I was found unfit and I started that process, the Army approved for me to stay on active duty in January of 2010. So just short of three years from when I was wounded, they, they said I could continue to serve. And um, you know, and trying to figure out uh, what I would do. Eventually, um, um, I would assume duties as the um, as the director of the Army Wounded Warrior Program. Um, uh, it was called a its acronym was AW2, and it was a program that the Army developed um, to to help our severely wounded, injured, and ill service members um, uh, transition, whether they're um, from injury or, or illness to transition back into the force, like me, for example, or to transition to civilian life. 
Um, we understood, given these wars now, um, um, and really kind of, I'd say the inconsistencies of, of the VA, and really in a larger, on a larger scale, the fact that America didn't expect us to be bogged down in these long wars. And so our society was not even prepared for, uh, for this transition. And so we, uh, we, the Army built this program, and I got to run it for a couple of years to, to ensure that, um, uh, that we weren't just, you know, kicking people out of the Army and saying, thanks, but, you know, thanks for your service, have a nice day, but that we, that we were, you know, kind of parachuting them down and, 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 and give them a chance to really uh, have an effective transition and, and, and set themselves up for success. Well, couldn't ask for a better person, somebody who's seen every single side of, of, of that yes, sir. Uh, to, to come and, and, and run uh, an agency such as that so that people can get the help that they need because, uh, you know what, we, we as Americans need to get behind this and forget about our political affiliations and all those kind of things. I don't care about that. We get to do what we get to do because of, of what our military does, whether you like it or not. And at the end of the day, we need to take care of these people, not only short term, but long term, because of all they do for us. And we get the easy way out. I get to drive down the hill and come to work and deal with awesome employees and make some products and sell them. I can't do that without this. And so I know that, you know, I pontificate that quite often to people and people around the office here have to hear it. And I'm at the point of my life. I don't care. Let's get on a light note for a minute, because you have some pretty fun things that have happened uh, in in uh, in in retirement. Yeah, yeah. So you have two, not just one, because anyone can have one. You have two Super Bowl rings. Can you tell us how you got those? Yes, sir. Yes. So, um, you know, it's part of my I, I call it part of my family, part of my personal uh, parachute. Um Ironically, uh, not ironically, but one of my classmates uh, and former teammates from West Point, who was a coach for the New York Giants, actually had come to visit me um, in the hospital and back in, in July, just a couple of months after I was wounded, still recovering. You know, after his visit, he uh, when the Giants come to town to play the, the Washington Redskins, um, would you like to come to the game? And I said, sure. So, um, so it as the 2007-2008 season started, uh, the Giants would start out 0-2. They lost the first two games miserably. And, um, and they were coming to Washington to play the undefeated Redskins that were 2-0. and And he called me on that Monday before the game and, and you know, wanted to confirm whether or not I, I wanted to come to the game. And I, I did. And uh, I asked for four tickets for covering my family. And and then uh, the next day, he called me back on Tuesday and said, um, "Hey, you know, you know, we're 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 kind of struggling as a team. I, I I like to, you know, if you would be willing to speak to the team." And I remember kind of thinking to myself, "Ah, so you know, he, he's off tickets now. He wants me to speak." And so I had never look. I had never spoken, you know, uh, outside of army formations or anything, but I, I said, yes, of course, he's my teammate. I love him. And, uh, and, and so he, he had actually asked me before he actually presented the idea to, 
to Coach Coughlin, and so he he presented the the um, um, the idea to Coach Coughlin, and he agreed. And Coach Coughlin called me on a Friday, and and you know formally invited me to speak to the team. Now realize that what was really interesting, and I didn't realize this at this point, but this is the first time in Coach Coughlin's X number of years that he's invited someone outside to speak to his team the night before the game. But so I was the first, and and so the night before they played the uh, the Redskins, I, I I spoke to him and I shared a lot of what I I spoke to you about tonight. And and um, now remember. Um, so they made some adjustments. They actually, uh, um, you know, and so I don't really have an appreciation at all on if I got through to anybody or whatever, but, um, they invited me to stay on the sidelines for the game. And so uh, my son is there with me. I would, I would take that as a resounding yes. (laughs) So, but I, it was just totally over my head. So they were like, so I'm on the sideline, and I remember going into the locker room at halftime. The score was Redskins 14, Giants 3. I'm like, well, you're not a very good motivational speaker. So, but the but the Giants rallied, ended up winning the game, I believe, 24 to 17. And so that was the first of 11 consecutive road victories um, that would culminate um, in um, – in Super Bowl 42, where I got a chance to address the team for a second time that season, the night before they played the undefeated Patriots, uh, the 18-year-old Patriots in Super Bowl 42. And um, what I what I shared to what I shared differently that night, or what was different about my speech that night was I said, you know, I um, w- when I first spoke to you how many weeks ago I was a, I was a complete stranger. And, and, uh, tonight I'm speaking to you as a teammate. And I said, um, I said, quite honestly, if, if I could be anywhere else in the world right now, I would be back with my soldiers in Iraq. Um, but I would take every single one of you with me, um, because I've seen you all uh, become a team and I told them that I know that you will defeat the Patriots tomorrow. And they did. And so they awarded you a ring, a Super Bowl ring, right? And then we got it. We got it. And so we we got the we got the um, the encore um, in Super Bowl forty two against the Super Bowl forty six again against the Patriots and uh, and another W. And they gave me a ring for that too. So you know, and and I, I've watched some YouTube's around this preparing for today. And I I said it earlier, and you said it several times, the power of belief. And there's a piece in there when Michael Strahan comes up to the team on this YouTube I was watching. And he says something to the effect of, remember, the power of belief. And he just got got the team going. Yep. Yep. So, So not only football, you bet on the big screen. You're an absolute big shot. Yeah, well, I don't know about a big shot, but but um, you know, um, I, I was fortunate that uh, I guess you could say Peter Berg, who's a, a New Yorker and a, a film director, was a was an avid uh, fan of the New York Giants, and and his father and a mil- and his father was a was a, a Marine, and so uh, his his respect of his father and, and military service. 
um, inspired him to invite, and uh, being a New York Giant, is, in, in inspired me to, for him to invite me to act in the movie Battleship. And, um, you know, like, um, I've never had never acted in my life. Um, uh, this man was willing to, um, to give me a chance. And it just, you know, it just, you know, before you knew it, I was, I was acting. So what's next? What's the next big Hollywood? Well, uh, I, I do. Um, there's a movie called Journal for Jordan uh, that's due out this December. Um, I, I believe I'm pretty sure it's Denzel Washington's uh, directing debut. And I'm in a cameo scene at the, I think, at the very end of the movie. I haven't seen it. I've just, you know, I filmed on set all day. Um, a scene that was actually filmed in Arlington Cemetery, which was a first in over 22 years. Um, and the story um, is about a, an Army non-commissioned officer uh, who was killed before he was able to marry his, his fiance that was carrying his child. And it's unfortunately a sad story, not only because of his death, but sort of the, um, in this case, uh, some of the gaps in our federal system because they weren't legally married. You know, the child would not get benefits uh, immediately. And so it just became, um, so it's the bureaucracy of, of that. And, and then unfortunately, some of the dynamics of uh, two families. Um, this, uh, uh, this this soldier, this army non-commissioned officer, were killed. That was killed. Had kept a uh, had actually kept a journal, uh, just in case for his unborn son, and and that that became a significant struggle for his son to get to get that. So I don't want to ruin it no. for the audience, but um, but it it, it will um, journal it will bring some tears. Journal for Jordan, and yes, and battleship from two thousand twelve. Yep. Yeah, and I I did uh, I did one season. I did ten episodes of a of a family television series that came on Saturday morning TV called The Inspectors. Um, so I've got some uh, some things there, and um, I you know um, if I could recommend something to watch, Tom, it would be a PBS documentary called uh, Debt of Honor, and it. It it talks about um, um, it talks about our country um, in the last less than ten years establishing its first national um, monument for for um, for for service members with disabilities, and um, and it profiles uh, four of us. I'm one of the four profiled um, Max Cleland, Vietnam vet. Uh, Senator Tammy Duckworth and uh, J.R. Martinez and myself are are, uh, are the uh, interviewees that kind of talk about that. But it really it takes dis uh, it takes uh, our disabled service members from the very beginning of our country through today, and um, and some of the things to me that are kind of uh, eye opening and sad is that you know the conversations that we're having now. We were having, we've had before, sure, and, and um, that's a, in some ways that's disheartening because, I mean, when you you can go back to the, the beginning of the 19th century and and we're still and we're talk the same headlines in the New York Times you could you could read today, 
Sure. And, um, yeah. And that, that to me is a little uh, disheartening. We need to make progress and we need to stick to it and not backslide from it. Yep. The inspectors, PBS documentary called Debt of Honor, Journal for Jordan coming out, and Battleship from 2012. Yeah. Boy, your career is going all over the place because we haven't even gotten into your all of your entrepreneurship experience. But before we do get into that, Colonel, for, for some young folks that are in high school, in college, and they're just not sure what direction to go, what advice could you give them from the standpoint of the military, there's great careers to be had. There's a tremendous amount of honor in a career. Uh, what what advice can you give to young people? Sure. So um, as someone who's, uh, who served in the military for 26 years, I can tell you that, that serving in the military, is, I, I would do everything all over again, 100% knowing what exactly happened to me. It is that in my service and the relationships I've built around serving have meant that much to me. Um, you know, I, I, and, and I would, what I would tell you is that I have, if I've met 10, I've met a thousand people that have said, I wish I had served. I wish I had served. And so being young, there's a small window that you have and an opportunity to serve. And, and almost like your education, your military service is something that you'll have the rest of your life. Um, you don't, you, not all of us are gonna ever have a chance to truly, truly uh, be a part of something that's bigger than ourselves. Um, I have done and experienced things that the richest people in the world cannot buy. They cannot purchase. I've, um, it's just amazing from, from, you know, combat and, but not just combat, just helping people, you know, you know, um, the, the, the great will of this nation, the kind of technology, the toys that we get to play with, you don't see um, in, the, in the civilian world. And so um, I, I've just done some, 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 I've got some neat experiences. I mean, literally being on an aircraft carrier, standing between two jet aircrafts launching off of, a, off of, um, off of um, the Eisenhower CVN-68. Oh, you know, some, you know, that's what we don't think about too, is some of those, those amazing experiences, obviously team, and you talk about a football team, but think about the teams you were on every year, every day through your career, that it is truly a team from the, the word go and everybody has their own back where out in society, not everybody has their own back. And those are experiences a lot of us will never get to have or get to see. Yep. Yep. Let's pivot just a little bit here because you know what? I heard you, we're, we're listening to you talk. Obviously you are an amazing speaker and you have so much knowledge and history to pull from, from, from all of your careers that you have become an entrepreneur. You have Patriot Strategies, LLC, and pop culture. Can you share with us 
what you're doing now and a little bit about these companies and, and the force that drove you to begin this as an entrepreneur. Sure. So, um, so Patriot Strategies, um, um, I actually created the company um, at the, on the advice of Army lawyers. So I, I created this company uh, actually less than a year after I was wounded. Um, I found a voice that, that became in demand um, because of my, my journey with the New York Giants. More people wanted to kind of hear from me. And, um, and, and it didn't start out as I, I was literally just doing it for, for nothing. And, uh, I, and someone said that, you know, you, you should be getting compensated for this. And so when the compensation thing came in, the, uh, my lawyer said, look, you should start an LLC so that you can, um, so you can officially keep your government and your non-government activities uh, separate. So I started uh, Patriot Strategies. Patriot was my call sign. I was Patriot Six when I was wounded. Ah. Strategies was um, a sufficiently vague word. I didn't want to be pigeonholed into anything, so I I chose a word like strategy. So, you know, it doesn't really say what I do because I'm not really sure. <laughs> so, um, um, and and for the next for the rest of my army career, um, really all of my public speaking and acting and anything I did kind of outside of uh, my official duties and uniform fell on that company. When I when was as I started approaching retirement, you know, I I, I are leaving the army. Um, what I sort of came to the conclusion was that. Um, I, I want to be in control of my life. I want to. I want to be the person that's deciding what I do, what I do, and when I do it. And and so I needed to work for myself. And so um, I took on a partner, um, another West Point grad and former teammate who had had significant uh, experience in the in the private sector and in government contracting. And and so um, we decided to to um, to turn Patriot Strategies more into a, um, or not more into, but into uh, the, to uh, take on government contracting, service-based government contracting. So, so um, the, the majority of the contracts that I'm, I'm working with um, support uh, our government, or, or really all of our government, uh, Department of Defense, but, but agencies outside of the Department of Defense and, um, 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 as well. So, um, so I have, uh, you know, my, my company is, you know, our, our, my, with my partner, we've grown our company to, um, you know, r roughly 75 employees over the, over the past seven years. And, and so we're, um, so we're growing there and then culture pop, um, is, I say it's all really neat, but culture pop was, um, what is a is a a micro base um, um, a micro learning program? Um, I call a mirror for you to reflect upon your views. Um, we were motivated by, um, ironically, um, the incidents of of what happened in Minnesota, in um, with George Floyd in in creating. Uh, 
and, and uh, a program that could help people kind of take inventory of their own biases and their own, um, really their own biases in an anonymous way. And so, um, uh, so culture pop is, you can buy it in a, uh, you know, in an app store for either device, but, but our real target for this, this program is, is the private sector companies for them to offer it as a, um, as a software, um, for us, as a service um, to allow their, uh, to enhance their culture, not change it, but to enhance it. You know, I, in, in my lifetime, you know, having parents that you think about this, I'm 55 years old. My parents were born in this country, were born into a society that did not uh, give them the same rights that I enjoy today. They, they grew up in the Jim Crow South and, and we've made change, but, and, and a lot through laws, but my instincts have tell me that there's only so far that laws are gonna go. Laws can change behavior, but they don't change hearts. And we've got to figure out how to get into people's hearts. So that they're not, uh, so they're not carrying this, and so this is what inspired uh, um, um, ten other of my classmates. Uh, we we added a, a Naval Academy grad and a, a Rhodes Scholar from the class of '87. Uh, we developed this program to to really get at, um, at 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 having an impact, and and our private sector has got to be part of it too. It can't be just the government. Our whole society as a whole has got to do that. So, so that's what this program, Culture Pop. And people about. can download that from the App Store on any of their devices. Yep. Awesome. So you are one busy guy. I'll tell you what. And when you speak in front of a group, I mean, we're one-on-one -on -one right now. But when you speak in front of a group, you command the group like there's no tomorrow. And we sit on the edge of our chairs because I did it firsthand, folks. You sit on the edge of your chair on every word that Colonel Gadsden says, because it's right from his heart. And he's telling, frankly, you're telling a whole bunch of us what we need to hear. And we don't hear enough. So we're going to lighten it up here a little bit. So we have a segment here, Colonel, called the Packed Question Segment. Pretty ironic, huh? all this pack, these yeah, words yeah. with pack on them. So what do you, forget Colonel, Greg Gadsden, love to do in your free time? Other than go on a 125-mile wheelchair race Saturday. <laughs> yeah, well, um, uh, great question. And, and uh, I got to thank you again for um, for for. Um, you, you, you all, um, don't know what Tom did, but I, I, I have a Duluth pack. I, I got a Duluth camera bag because, because my passion is, is photography. And, and when I was in Minnesota, uh, for the, uh, for the, um, oath hunt fundraiser, uh, Tom saw my camera backpack on the, on the back of my chair. And so when I was talking to Tom about ordering um, uh, uh, the camera backpack that he has, 
he was intuitive enough, observant enough, and, and considered enough to say, he, he asked me to share the measurements of my wheelchair so that they could put custom hooks on this camera backpack. And so I, 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 am, you, I can't tell you how much that's, that touched me, Tom, because you know, that doesn't happen all the time. And, and, and it says a lot about you because you observe that. I mean, your, your, curio, your intellectual curiosity, I mean, that's, I know that's one reason why you're a successful businessman, but, 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 but even, you know, a greater person that you picked up on that. I mean, that is, that is absolutely um, touched my heart and, and profound. And so um, it's going to enable me because, because my photography, that's my Kansas, that that's my canvas. That's my journal. That's my um, it's my uh, way of maintaining my, my balance in life is, as I call it, slowing down the moment. When I'm when I'm in photography mode, I'm slowing life down. I'm seeing, I'm being present. And you do a lot of travel, so I'm assuming you're capturing a lot of your travel now with with your cameras and and all your gear and and uh, yep. and trying to capture yep. all that. That is that's awesome, and we hope you enjoy the bag. That that's enough about me. That's not what this this whole thing's about. And everyone, I mean, should just take care of each other. It's just the way things should be. So what? You're being humble. You're no, being humble and modest, but thank you. What is the best piece of advice you were ever given? Best piece of advice. Um, I'll tell you, this is, uh, you know, the one that comes to mind is this. I was a, I was a pretty junior major. I just completed the, uh, the, the command and general staff college at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And, and I reported to Fort Shafter um, in, in Hawaii. And this, uh, this wise Colonel, Colonel Dave Shanahan, uh, I think he was class of 72 or 71. I can't remember exact West Point class, but he told me, um, he says, you're a field grade officer now, not a company grade, you know, Lieutenant through captain, you're a field grade officer. And he says, your job is to work your way out of a job. You don't want people dependent on you. And, um, and you know, it, it, and I, I just think that's some of the best advice I've, I've ever been given. And, and, and what has kind of led me in, in, in my leadership style has been to, I say, trust, empower, and hold accountable. I, I don't ever want to become this focal point of or the single point of failure. And what and that, that means you you're pushing the power down. It, you 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 work your way out of a job by by giving them the the power and authority, minus a few critical things that you hold near and dear to your heart, that they so they can function. You know, they don't want to have to raise their hand every time they, you know, make a turn, right? You don't, that's not running an organization. That, and so um, the essence of, of what he told me was, you know. Um, lead. Yeah, lead. That's what I'm hearing from you. If, if, if that's correct, is lead and people will, will do great. Yep, yep, yep. That, that is what a great piece of advice. 
My last, and this is an easy one, but you can't cheat here now on this one. I was going to say, okay. what's your favorite movie? But other than the ones you've been in. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, you may remember this, but it's, uh, and he's one of my personal heroes, um, a guy named Gordon Park Sr. Um, was one of 13, the youngest of 13 kids that grew up in Fort Scott, Kansas. He wrote and directed the movie Shaft, 1970, 1971. But he was a photographer. He was a he was the first African American full time photographer for Life Magazine. He was a writer. He wrote and directed the movie, and and it's it's really I have a I have a movie post I have that movie poster hanging in my in my office. One of my one of my favorite movies. That is awesome. So we normally, Colonel, end the segment with saying, until next time, unplug from the indoors and recharge in the outdoors. But today I'm throwing that out the window because this has been really something special for me. I, I, I got to tell you. And, and just so everyone knows, and I, I want you to go on the Internet and look up Colonel Greg Gadsden, U.S. Army, served 26 years for all of us and read some background about, about Colonel Gadsden and the sacrifices he's given for all of us. But today, I just want to do a small dedication because you and I, we started this out today, and I know I'm throwing this on you, but we both lost, a, we, you, we both lost the same friend, but you lost another friend all on the same day this week, and both of them are veterans of this, this country. So I'll go first, and then I want you to. I'm dedicating this episode today to Rob Evans, uh, retired U.S. Army. You and I connected because of Rob Evans, uh, and he got cancer and, and left us very, very quickly. Uh, but I want to dedicate this today to this podcast to Rob Evans. And uh, and. And, and thank you for, for doing that, Tom. And, and um, another great American um, uh, general retired, Ray Odenero, um, in that class of, of 1976 at the United States Military Academy, uh, retired as the chief of staff of the United States Army, was a member of the, uh, the chairman and joint chiefs of staff. And... Um, he, he also passed away this Saturday from cancer at 67 years old, too young. Um, Much too young. You know, there's, there's just sort of a, there's sort of a big hole in the, in the universe with uh, the loss of this great man and these great men in their own ways um, to the very end touch so many were given to the very end. And, and um, it's uh, you know, we, we we recognize that this is not a a, a, a permanent journey, but we know, um, but it's still it's still painful when we when we lose some it, some people that give so much. It, it certainly is, and that, that's why I wanted to have a chance to dedicate today because it's important to both of us. And and if we learned anything today, folks, is is all of this great words of wisdom from Colonel Gadsden is the power of belief. Um, you know, I, I saw that when when he was with the the New York Giants. I heard him say it uh, this summer. I heard him say it again today, and that's something I'm going to 
to absolutely leave with, as well as I got a lot of research to do looking uh, all this Hollywood stuff you're doing, Colonel. So folks, again, Colonel Greg Gadsden, U.S. Army, retired 26 years, served us honorably. Uh, God bless, Colonel. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. God bless. Thank you much. Thank you for listening to another episode of Leader of the Pack. Don't forget to rate this podcast. And we would certainly be grateful if you'd give us five stars. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Follow Duluth Pack on social media at Duluth Pack. And shop online at DuluthPack.com. Don't forget to support American jobs and buy American made.